Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by Sarah McDougall. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. You uh, have joined in the past our book discussions, and I've really appreciated seeing the work that you do online with communities involved with trauma and domestic violence and abuse. Um, we're talking about uh, what's happened at Weimar University, but also these, this is just a, one example of a systemic problem that permeates um, Christianity specifically, and you really focus on this. So I wanted to call up an expert and hear what your thoughts are perhaps first let's talk about wild and uh, what you do there sure so i am the co-founder of wilderness to wild and we are an organization that focuses on helping women and empowering women to recover from abuse primarily those who've experienced forms of abuse in the faith community um, we run private uh, support groups online and we have women in more than 45 countries that participate in close to 7,000 women in our groups at this time. Um, and they're from a variety of faith community backgrounds and origins. But the one thing that uh, all of them have in common is having experienced betrayal trauma. And that is the trauma of betrayed trust through infidelity, porn addiction, um, etc., or domestic violence, or a combination of betrayal trauma and domestic violence, and the spiritual abuse, verbal, psychological, emotional abuses that often go with that. In the faith community, we find that while there are many, many things that enhance and improve people's well-being and health and mindset, as a result of living with a faith-oriented frame of mind and a faith-oriented um, focus in life, there are also many times a lot of, of doctrinal teachings or theologies that end up wittingly or unwittingly perpetuating and strengthening the chokehold of abuse over those who are vulnerable. And these can be things like um, teaching the obligation sex message that um, women are obligated and required to, that wives have to meet men's sexual needs regardless of whether or not they feel like it or it's enjoyable for them, which basically turns it into marital coercion and rape inside marriage. Um, it can be things like if you... I'll jump in there and just point yeah, go out ahead. That, yeah, yeah, that go literally ahead. was preached in a sermon by an Adventist pastor within yes, the last was. year, reported yep. on very widely. I know you were sort of involved in that. So these sort of things can sometimes to, you know, someone here listening maybe sound extreme, but these are more common than we realize, aren't they? Yes, they are. And in fact, uh, I end up 
multiple times a week being sent. I, I wish I had a couple of clones of myself to just sit and watch through the sermon clips and sermon videos that are posted publicly online that people find. And they're like, you would not believe this guy saying um calling women vulgar names from the pulpit or talking about um, how husbands are entitled to take whatever they want inside the marital relationship from the pulpit. And these are available out there. I just, I don't have time or emotional bandwidth to sit and comb through all of them, but it's actually, unfortunately, not nearly as rare as we would like to think. Mm. Something a little less blatant, but also very common, is the idea that if you are in a difficult marriage, uh, difficult being a, a euphemism for abusive, hmm. but if, if your marital relationship is difficult, let's say you have a spouse, a, a husband, because I work with women, um, a husband who is coercive, controlling, incredibly domineering, um, financially controlling, uh, dictatorial, all of these things are forms of abuse. They are the opposite of the fruit of the spirit, right? Someone who is not loving, gentle, oh. joyful, peaceful, patient, good, kind, self-controlled. Um, so these these are abusive traits. And, and very, very often, more often than not, pastors will encourage women to go home, give him more sex, pray for him, and put up with it. And so women inside faith communities are often saddled with a very pharisaical level of burden that if they were to seek safety, speak out, or set boundaries of any kind for their well-being, for their health, for their children's well-being, that they are being bad wives, that they are not just breaking their promises, but they are betraying God himself. And this goes in all denominations, even, even like very common mainstream ones. We, we have evidence from Focus on the Family, counselors and phone calls telling women to stay with pedophile husbands who are abusing their kids and pray for them more. I mean, wow. this is not, this is not just isolated in some weird, crazy pocket of like polygamist cults or something where you might think, oh, well, they look weird, they act weird, they're very, very different. So yes, they would teach weird things. This is mainstream. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a very long answer to your yeah. very short question. Um, but well, this is what we work with. Um, can you? maybe talk about so much of the news recently has concerned institutions. And so the story about Weimar seems like um, it's part of a much larger story that happens over and over again with organizations. A woman appeals for uh, someone to listen to her administration seems to act like they do, but nothing really changes. You hear these stories all the time. What are some things that stand out as sort of common character traits of this sort of systemic um, institutional abuse of women? So I would say women are by far the most vulnerable in being on the receiving end of institutional betrayal. Mm. Um, 
We also see it happen with men as well at times. And I just want to throw that out there for balance sake, although the bulk of my work is all working with women. So I tend to focus very much on women who are survivors of abuse. But the term institutional betrayal was coined by Dr. Jennifer Freyd um, in Oregon. And she's done tremendous research and work on the aspects of institutional betrayal and institutional fortitude, institutional courage, and what makes a difference between institutions that do the right thing for the vulnerable and institutions that protect themselves against perceived threat, which would be anyone reporting that anything has gone wrong in relationship to the institution. Um, We see this across the board. And generally, I, I know you already pointed this out, It we like to think, oh, well, that's other people. It's other organizations, not mine. And people tend to think that no matter which organization we're standing in. So when um, the Boston Globe and Spotlight was reporting on all of the, the just ripping the veil off of Catholic abuse, all of the Protestants were like, we're so glad that isn't us. (laughs) And now we have the, uh, I I just, Friday, the 12th of August, um, the Department of Justice is investigating multiple entities within the Southern Baptist Convention. And this news just hit the Christian Post, like uh, SBC leadership is under investigation from the DOJ because of how they have mishandled decades of reports of sexual abuse. Um, we have then then when the SBC stuff started coming out, other denominations in more mainstream Protestantism, evangelicalism, and other conservative denominations, they're like, oh, well, at least that's just the SBC. But really, it's everywhere because institutional betrayal of the vulnerable and institutional abuse is present any time we have a certain set of systemic abusive traits. So kind of wanted to go over those. Yeah, let's what are, what are those kind of classic traits? There are eight things in any system of abuse. And then we can talk about how they play out. Great. So the, the there are four um four relational aspects of abuse. And those are isolation, deflection, manipulation, and intimidation. Very often inside a faith community that is abusive, you have an us versus them mentality. And that's isolation. That can often happen in conservative climates where folks feel like they've kind of got the truth or they're more in line with the correct sets of beliefs. And so, you know, their, um, their, um, they're sort of, uh, intellectually isolated. And sometimes these happen on campuses that are isolated from mainstream society. So they're kind of physically, um, separate as well. Yep. Very much so. Um, and I would, I would say that oftentimes, People who swing to the very conservative side of things in their worldview tend to point at liberal hedonism Hmm. as where all of the sexual exploitation and abuse happens. 
And it's true. I don't know that there's necessarily more exploitation and abuse in conservative versus in liberal camps, if you want to use that terminology. The difference is in a very hedonistic environment, there's no hiding it. Yeah. In the conservative environment, it's underneath this cloak of either righteousness or utopia or innocence or whatever else perpetuates the naivety. And in a much more liberal hedonistic type, not that all liberals are hedonistic, but I'm putting those two together to define a specific type, a a hedonistic society, there's no pretense. It's just live for whatever you can get. And it's not a secret. You expect it. So in a way, not that that isn't traumatic to those who are exploited, but trauma often can be the impact of trauma, the amount of trauma someone experiences is not often, is not always just how bad the instance or the experience was. It's how jarring it was in relationship to how safe the person believed themselves to be. Mm, Great point. Safety. So if you believe that you are safe at home in your bed, and a bazooka hits your house that is going to be traumatic in a far different way than if you are a war zone reporter and a bazooka hits your office building simply because you are not assuming that you are safe you are already in a hypervigilant state because you know that you've chosen to be there as a war reporter now you may come that way with ptsd it it may be very traumatic but it will hit differently if you believe you are safe at home in your bed it will be very different so when we have these utopian kind of clusters where everything is supposed to be very very hyper religious and then there are these institutional betrayals there's the sexual exploitation there's this cover up these scandals that get glossed over it can make the trauma incredibly intense. And because of that isolation, that first element of a system of abuse, it makes it very hard to know whom is safe to reach out to. Sure. Where do you go for help? Because you've been taught everyone outside of your little utopian bubble is bad. Yeah. It takes tremendous courage and an overcoming of everything that you've bought into or been taught to go outside of your sphere of community in this kind of situation in order to actually seek safety and help. And typically people will seek safety from inside of that bubble first. Yeah. So when those that they went to for help and protection choose not to help them, it's called double abuse. Hmm. And it's often reported to be even worse than the primary trauma. Let's say a girl gets sexually assaulted at a at a Bible college. I mean, not to hit too close to home here. But <laughs> theoretically. Theoretically speaking, let's just say a girl gets assaulted uh at, at a Bible college and that is incredibly traumatic. But then she goes to get help and she tells someone. And they either make it her fault or they minimize it or they don't believe her or they get rid of her and keep the perpetrator there. That will 
very likely, statistically speaking, victims and survivors report that part to be more painful than the original incident. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Because it's one thing for a bad person to harm you. It's another thing for safe people that you thought were safe, people you believed to be in the position of power to make it stop for them to choose not to. And you would assume they have some sort of spiritual leadership associations with them as well? Very often, yes. And then at that point, trauma and abuse always impacts our picture of God. So when someone who is in a position of power, leadership, authority, influence, when they ignore the fact that you've been raped or you've been assaulted or you've had this terrible thing happen to you, then they are by proxy presenting a an inaccurate they're they're taking the name of the Lord in vain. Hmm. They are saying that God doesn't care either by using their power and their influence to protect the perpetrator instead of the vulnerable. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful to break that down and, and very sobering. Let's talk about some of the other um, indicators. These aspects? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so, so isolation. The more isolated someone is, the more vulnerable they are, mm -hmm. the more they are um, removed from being able to get outside help. Deflection is the next one. Um, I, I know uh, my son loves Star Wars stuff and anything techie and force fields and all of these kind of things. So if you think about deflection as if you have a shield and it's got a force field on it and anything that comes close to it just slides off. Deflection is all the bad stuff slides off of me and onto anyone else. It was... It was the victim's fault. It was what she was wearing. It was how she came on to the perpetrator. It was the fact that she was out late at night and should have been in her dorm before curfew. It was the fact that she didn't come tell us soon enough. It was the fact that she came and told us right away. And obviously, she should have stopped to think about it longer. Like there's any litany, there's, mm. there's no way you can report right. Yeah, sure. And it is never the fault of the person who did it. Well, I, I shouldn't use terms like always and never. I try not to do sweeping generalizations. But in this mindset, the, the, those in authority who have the power to make it stop or the perpetrator themselves do not take responsibility for it. They deflect. So that force field, that shield, it just slides off and lands on the lap of whoever is close enough to take the blame. And the third one is manipulation. Go ahead. Oh, uh, great. I just think that's a helpful analogy because we, we see it all the time uh, in the way that um, authority figures, they, um, they're they kind of looking for uh, excuses in, in seeing this threat come to them, administrators I'm talking about here. And so they're looking for a kind of well, let's look at the other side, I think, is a classic kind of deflection. Um, and uh, anyway, let's go on to the next one. <laughs> no, no, you're right. You're right. So manipulation is the third one in this. And and it is the it's the inverse 
of deflection. So manipulation, if if deflection is all the bad stuff slides off of me and onto someone else, manipulation is all the good stuff comes to me. Mm. Oh, we, we did handle it right. What are you talking about? We did do this. We took care of it. We are a safe place. We don't have any issues like that. All the good stuff comes to us. So whoever is managing the public image of the of the situation, instead of dealing with the core issue, someone was harmed and the perpetrator needs to be held accountable, they're dealing in spin. Mm-hmm. So manipulation is the opposite of that force field shield. It's like a magnetic shield. You hold it up and all the good stuff, it just, it all the accolades, all the positive, everything comes to me. I'll jump in there with an example that I, in doing the reporting uh, more than a decade ago about uh, Samuel Coringtang Pippin, the f- sort of founder of uh, GYC here in Adventism and um, head of campus ministries for Michigan Conference. Um, you know, I, I got a chance to listen to some of his phone conversations with one of his victims uh, recorded mm-hmm. by, you know, without him knowing. And um, it was really interesting to see that sort of manipulation going on by him as a sort of very talented evangelist and somebody who is incredibly convicted about his own righteousness. On the flip side of that, I I had a chance to talk with uh, the pastor who's going to rebaptize him after a year. And it was really interesting to hear that kind of a manipulation through by the pastor who really didn't understand um, the situation. And, and I actually had to bring out some of the reporting that was publicly available, but the pastor hadn't paid attention to. And it was very clear to me that, um, that um, the, the mistakes that were being made there were um, in part because these were people with some power and they were using that power, whether it was the actual abuser or the pastor, um, in ways that were mostly to benefit themselves. Right, right. Well, we saw that. You you mentioned earlier that the the, the pastor in Brooklyn who preached in favor of marital rape, like promoting that once you get married, rape is legalized. Uh, and those were actually his words. Um, He went uh, down to Jamaica after leaving his post in Brooklyn and went on television with the Jamaican North, I think it was the North Jamaican conference president and did a whole interview about how he was moving forward and he was going to teach young pastors and he was going to do all of these things. Um, And then he rabbit trailed for just a, just a hot second in that particular interview and talked about all of the women who had watched his sermon and described those women as agents of Satan for sharing his sermon online. Now, sharing his sermon, the words he had said, there was no There was no manipulation of the words he had said, just sharing the words he had said and saying, hey, this isn't okay. But he he said that the women who went and shared, um, he described them as agents of Satan. It made me want to go get a t-shirt that said agent of Satan, but I figured nobody (laughs) would get the joke and I should not wear that out of the house. (laughs) It could be 
a mixed message there. But uh, I think that's a great point because right. the way that he was um, claiming victim status in yes. all of this, uh, yes. which is, um, I think, a repeated thing. Okay, so we've done isolation, deflection, manipulation. manipulation. What's number Fourth four again? Intimidation. Hmm. Now, in domestic violence, we often think of intimidation as being like that uh, kind of like in your face or physically aggressive, but there's all kinds of ways to intimidate someone. Um, let's just say, let's go back to the whole student in a in a Bible college kind of scenario because that hits really close to home with some of the news that has come out. Um, if you have a a young person who goes to their leaders and they say, hey, this has happened. And those leaders tell them, you need to make sure you don't talk to anyone about this. You need to make sure that you don't jeopardize your future as a student at this school, because if you go talk to anyone, we may not be able to 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 manage the stuff that people think. And you know, then that would really be, you'd be responsible for that. And so they those are all intimidation. Even if it's framed in the best interest of the vulnerable victim, it's isolation. It's manipulation and it's intimidation. So anytime we see these tools being employed, these are the kind of tools that Satan used in the Garden of Eden right from the beginning. These are never tools used by Jesus Christ in his ministry and life here on earth or in any of the messages that God has given us that are actually from God. We see in the Bible, we see plenty of, of individuals misusing and misrepresenting and misappropriating their power. But when we see God using his power, he never isolates. He never deflects responsibility. He never manipulates to make himself look in a way that he is not. And he does not intimidate. He offers free will. Mm. So that's four. Those are the four tools of an abusive system. If you see these, whether it is in a marriage or a workplace or a, or a school in an educational system or a church and a faith community, you are living in an abusive system. Like, you have to sit with that for a second sometimes. Yeah. If your pastor is telling you, don't read any books except the ones your pastors have written or the people in your specific faith have written, don't go anywhere, don't hang out with other people, don't be part of them out there. Jesus says the opposite of that. He says, go be salt and light, go live out in the world. That's, um, you're doing some preaching there. I uh. <laughs> So when we have these situations or these these tools being used, um, it can look like any number of very classic issues. And these, these weave throughout any relational system. It's not just schools and it's not just marriages. It's any relational dynamic. So things like bottlenecking authority. If all decisions come down to just one person or one or two people. That's a problem, especially in an institution. If there's this, this atmosphere of closing ranks, 
Yeah. We, we shut out everyone outside. We're going to handle this inside. Run. It will never be handled. And we see that in the reporting that obviously has come out about the Catholic clergy abuse. And we see that in some of the kind of independent Christian ministries that have had um, focus on them recently. And um, are there ways that you see that in, you know, since we're speaking mostly to an Adventist audience, that you see that that kind of um, um, kind of, do you see concerning evidence of that in Adventism in any kind of specific ways? Yes, absolutely. Uh, when, When there's a very narrow inner circle, uh, that is in the know. It mm-hmm. allows for there to be unchecked power and authority without accountability, without transparency, without um, accessibility to the facts. Any decision or situation that has been made for, let's just say, the best interest of the congregation at large or the community at large, it should be able to withstand scrutiny. Hmm. Truth does not have to defend itself. Sure. If something needs to be locked away, then there is a problem. Because the presumption is that the facts cannot defend themselves. So if you have, let's, let's just say, going back to that very narrow top inner circle, um, when that kind of thing is in place, it kind of kills two birds with one stone, and both are obsessed with power. Power that is not held accountable by transparency. So you have this whole, oh, you don't need to worry about it. The committee or the leader will handle it. Mm-hmm. So it creates this idolatrous pedestal. And it places the leader in a position almost of worship and, and, and power over everyone else. We don't need to know. We can blindly follow because we're just going to blindly trust that they will handle it. And at the same time, it removes all aspects of accountability because everyone else is assuming that that very tight inner circle is going to handle it. And we don't have to get involved. And and in one hand, it's kind of a relief to many people because they don't want to be in having to do things with all the messy stuff. It means yeah. I can wash my hands of it and not have to think about the harm done anymore. Yeah. But also, it means there's no one else's eyes on it. Do you know where else we see that kind of mentality? Uh, no. Tell me. <laughs> In in dictatorial, tyrannical countries and governments where there is no freedom of thought or freedom of action or freedom of speech. We see it in um, Pol Pot or North Korea or Stalin or the Gang of Five or it's the same mentality. This tiny cluster of people at the top will make decisions for all those underneath and everyone else simply clicks their heels and marches in line. Hmm. Yeah, there's a certain, um, I think, craving that 
you know, some humans have for um, turning over their critical faculties to uh, authority figures. And, you know, there's a sense that you've, you know, you're, you've given over responsibility, so um, you don't have to worry about it anymore. And but it's really abdicating your autonomous personhood. And yeah. that's not how God created us. Yeah. Yeah. Gets to the central ideas that we have about free will and, and our connection so. to the divine. This has been really helpful. And I appreciate you shedding some light on some of the characteristics that lead to these um, horrific uh, stories that we're following. Just wrapping up here, um, you know, you're so much of this is negative news and you um, continue to go to church and participate in a community. Um, and I'm curious what you see as hopeful despite all the um, unfortunate uh, stories that you are uh, working on healing. That's a great question. Um, and I'm glad that you're focused on ending on something positive. When, when we are dealing with situations like this, um, it is very important, I think, to continually come back to the fact, this is what's been important to me anyway, others may find their, their uh, ray of sunshine in many different ways, I suppose. But to me, it has been life-saving to come back to the fact that when people are evil, they are not representing my God. Mm. And sometimes people talk about how, oh, life is rough. A Christian life is rough. It's hard. No, you know what? Life is rough on this planet because this planet is degenerated and degraded and because there is sin and evil anywhere, everywhere. Um, for me personally, life with Jesus is a whole lot better than life without because that is where I find hope and healing and happiness and joy and wholeness. And so, yeah, I do still go to church, even though I work with all of this. And I don't judge those who have decided that church is not a safe place for them either. I get that. Um, but my personal relationship with Jesus and the way that he has taught and revealed himself to me in connecting with the truth of who God is and realizing that these situations of harm and power hungry and betrayal of trust, these institutional betrayals, they do not represent the character of God. Mm. You know, you asked me at the very beginning. What do we do? Well, my team and I do our best to bring that picture of God back to people who are hurting. Earlier this year, we launched a mobile app that has just been an amazing resource and tool for specifically, it's called Trauma Mamas. Um. And it is specifically for women who have escaped abuse and they are in that long slog after they've gotten out. There are a ton of domestic violence resources out there, but after they've gotten out and then they're trying to rebuild, rebuild and create a, a healthy home for their kids. 
even if their kids are going back and forth now between two homes, they want their home to be a healthy, happy one after trauma. And so this app has monthly toolkits and content, and we have an ITR, Instinctual Trauma Response Certified Trauma Coach, that works with anxiety management and self-regulation, and we have safety experts. And so we just, we, we work on creating tools that bring people back to wholeness and health after trauma. And when we get to see the light flip back on in somebody's eyes and they start to recognize that they are valuable and they are worth being loved and worth being safe and worth being protected after everything that they've been through. I think that's a reason to rejoice. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today and um, giving so many helpful insights and a little bit of hope here at the end. Thanks for all that you do with Wild, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing more of your good work out there on the uh, online. Thanks for having me. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. On the move, and the poor, and the meek, and the hungry, and the lonely.